Section 28 of Uther and the Grein. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Uther and the Grein by Warwick Deeping. Book 3, Chapter 8. There is a charm in simplicity of soul and in sympathies green in the first rich burgeoning of the mind, unshriveled and untainted by the miserable misanthropies of the world. The girl, Garlet, was as ignorant as you will, but she loved God, had the heart of a thrush in springtime, and was possessed naturally of a warm and delicate appreciation of the feelings of others that would have put to utter shame the majority of court ladies. Women of a certain gilded class are prone to judge by superficialities, living often in an artificial air of courtesy. The very life about them is a cultured, perfumed atmosphere, unstirred by the deeper wind throbs of true passion or the solemn sweep of the more grand emotions. Hypocrisy, veneered with mannerisms, propped with etiquette, pegged up with gold, passes for culture and the badge royal of fine breeding. Of such things the girl Garlet was indeed flagrantly ignorant. She had lived in solitudes and had learned to comprehend dumb things. The cry of a sheep in pain, the mute look from eyes of a sick lamb. Her life made her quick to see, quick to discover. She had all the latent energy of a child and her senses were the undebauched handmaids of an honest heart. She knew nothing of the trivial prides, the starched and petty arrogances, the small self-satisfactions that built up the customs of the so-called cultured folk. She thought her thoughts, and they were generous ones, mark you, and spoke out on the instant without fear, as one whose words were, in very truth, the audible counterpart of the vibrations of her mind. To Agrain at first, there was some embarrassment in the ingenuous methods of this child of the forest. It was in measure disturbing to be confronted with a pair of blue eyes that looked at one like two pools of truth, and a pair of lips that naively remarked, You seem pale, lady, and in pain. You slept little, and talked even when you slept. I am rosy and cheerful, and I sleep from dusk till dawn. What is there in your heart that is not in mine? Still, with the abruptness once essayed, there was a refreshing sincerity in Garlet's openness of heart. It was as the first plunge into a clear, cool pool, a gasp at the first moment then infinite warmth, intense kindling of all the senses, with the clean ripples bubbling at the lips, and the swinging water buoying up the bosom. Garlet recalled Lilith, Radamant's daughter, to a grind, only that she had more penetration, more liberty of thought and character. The one was as a warm wind that lulled, the other a breeze blowing over open water, clean, invigorating, kind. Egrine's mood of unrest found refuge in the valley, 
and in Garlet's cottage, she won some measure of inward calmness in the simple life, the simple tasks that kept the more sinister energies of the mind at bay. It contented her for a season with its companionship, its air of home, its green, quiet, and tranquil beauty. Garlet's cheerfulness of soul, like some penetrating essence, suffused itself upon a grind, despite the militant savor of things more turbulent. She fell into temporary contentment almost against her will, even as sleep enforces itself upon a brain extravagantly possessed by the delirium of fever. For all the quiet of the place, circumstances were gathering and moving down upon her with that ghostly and inevitable fatefulness that constitutes true tragedy. No one could have seemed more hidden from the eye of fate than she in the deep umbrage of the trees. Yet often, when the heart imagines itself most secure from the factious meddling of the world, the far, faint cry of destiny smites on the ear like some sudden stirring of a wind at night. It was late evening, on the fifth day of Igrain's sojourn in the valley. The day had been dull, gray, and colorless, wrapped in a blue haze of rain that had fallen heavily, drenching the woods and making monotonous music on the water. Towards evening, the sky had melted to a serene azure. The air was a web of shimmering amber. The west streamed through a mist of gold, and every leaf glittered with dew. A luminous vapor hovered over the little mere, and there were rain pools in the meadows that burnt with a hundred sunsets like clear brass. Garlet and Igrine had been bathing in the mere. They had come up from the water to dry themselves upon a napkin of white cloth, the bronze gold and brown hair of each meeting like twin clouds, while their linen lay like snow on the trailing branches of a tree near the pool. Their limbs and shoulders gleamed against the silver-black mirror spread by the mirror. Their voices made a mellow sound through the valley as they talked. Igrine had fastened her violet surcoat about her beneath her breasts. Garlet's blue smock still hung from a branch above her head. As they sat under the tree, drying their hair and looking over the pool to the forest realm beyond, Igrine told the girl much of the outer world as she had seen it. Nor was her instruction unleavened by a certain measure of cynicism, a bitterness that surprised Garlet not a little. The girl had great dreams of the glories of old cities, the splendor of court life, the zest of a mere material existence. You do not love the great world, she said. Once, child, I did. Everything outside a convent wall seemed good to me. I thought men heroes, and the world a fairy place. Who has not? Thoughts change with time. That which I once hungered for, now I despise. I have never been into a great city, not even into Carlion. My father loved the country and said it was God's pasture. I would rather have a dog for a friend than most men, child. Man is always thinking of his stomach, his strength, or his passion. He is vain, dull, and surly often. 
takes delight in slaying dumb things, drinks beer, and sleeps like a log save for his snoring. But Renan doesn't. There are some men, child, among the swine. And the women? I have known good women. In the convent? I suppose there they were good, just as stones that lie in the grass are good in that they do very little harm. But they serve God. Mere habit, just as you eat your dinner. A hard saying. Your sayings would be hard, child, if you had learnt what I have learnt of the world. Garlet pulled her blue smock from the tree and wrapped it round her shoulders. But you love God, she said. What is God? The great Father who loves all things. Methinks then I am nothing. Nothing, Igrain. You say God loves all men and women. Why, then, have I been cursed with perversities ever since I was born, tormented with contradictions, baffled and mocked, till the eternal trivialities of life now make my soul sick in my body? Sorrow is heaven sent to chasten, just as rain freshens the leaves. Old, old proverb. Rain comes from clouds, clouds hide the sun. How can sorrow be good, child? when it darkens the light of life, hides God from the heart, and makes the soul bitter. That seems the wrong spirit, Igrain. So meek folks say, we are not all mild earth to be smitten and make no moan. There are sea spirits that lash and foam, fire spirits that leap and burn. My spirit is of the flame. Am I to be cursed then, because I was born with the soul of fire? We cannot answer all of this, Igrain. I hate to bow down blindly, to cast ashes on the head because a superstition bids us so. I have faith. I cannot see with my heart. I would you could, Igrain. Perhaps you are right. Garlet put on her shift and frock with a sigh and straightway went and kissed Igrain on the forehead. They sat close together under the tree and watched the valley grow dim as death, and the pool black and lustrous as a mirror turned to the twilight. Garlet's warm heart was yearning to Igrain. Her arm was close about her, and presently Igrain's head rested upon her shoulder. She began to tell the girl many things in a still, stifled voice. Her bitterness gushed out like fermented wine. And for a season she was comforted, with no lasting balm indeed, for there was but one soul in the world that could give her that. Believe, Igrain, believe, said Garlet very softly. Believe, child, that there is good for everyone in the world if we wait and watch in patience. I seem to have watched years go by, and life stretches out from me as a sea at night. Look not there, Igrain, but into your own heart and into the gold of faith. I have no heart to look to, child. Save into a man's, 
and it was a good heart. Good as a god's. Then look into it still. You speak like a mother. They had talked on into the dusk of night, forgetful of time, hearing only the dripping from the leaves, seeing nothing but the short stretch of water and herbage at their feet. Yet an hour ago, a figure in a palmer's cloak and cowl had come out from the western forest and stood leaning upon its staff to stare out broodingly over the valley. The laurel green of the man's cloak harmonized so magically with the green of grass and tree that it was difficult to isolate his figure from the framing of wood and meadow. The pilgrim had stood long in the shadows and watched the two white forms come up out of the waters of the pool. He had seen them sit and dry their hair under the tree as the dust crept down. While they talked, he had passed down towards the cottage, accomplished by the trees, slipping from trunk to trunk to enter the cottage itself while the girls' faces were turned from it towards the pool. From one of the narrow casements his cowled face had looked out. He had marked Grine's red-gold shimmering hair. He had seen her face for a moment. Also the shield hanging in the room with its cloven heart and white lilies, the sword and helmet, the harness of workmanship so subtle. When he had seen all this, he had stolen out again into the gloaming, a thin gliding streak of green under the gnarled thorns and the night-bosomed cedars. The forest had taken him to its depths again and the unutterable silence of its shades. The girls by the pool had heard no sound, nor dreamt of the thing that had been so near, watching like a veritable ghost through the mist of the mere's twilight. Carolyn slept under the moon, a dream city in a land of dreams. Its walls were like ivory in a dark gloom of green. The tower of the palace of the king caught a coronet from the stars. While in the window of an upper room, a thin flame flickered like a yellow rose blown athwart the black foliage of the night. Within blood-red curtains breathed over the arched door, a little altar stood against the eastern wall guarded above by angels haloed with gold, standing in a mist of lilies with wings of crimson and green. The silence of the hour seemed embalmed in silver. So pure, so still, so hallowed it was. Uther knelt before the little altar in prayer. The light from the single lamp slanted down upon him, but left his face in the shadow. It was past midnight, yet the man's head was still bowed down in his devotion. He was in an ecstasy of spiritual ascent to heaven, a mood that made the world a patmos and his own soul a revelation to itself. At such a time, his imagination could mount with a mystery of poetic rapture. Angels drumming on golden bells or bearing diamond chalices of purple wine seemed to gaze deep-eyed on him from a paradise of snow and amethyst. Above all shone the eternal face, that clear sun of Christendom shining with wounded love through the crimson transgressions of mankind. Deliberate footfalls and the rustle of a drawn curtain intervened between solitude and devotion. The curtain fell again. Footfalls echoed away to die down into a well of silence. A tall man, 
wrapped in a cloak, stood motionless in the oratory. Uther, still upon his knees, turned to the window and the moonlight with big prayerful eyes that questioned the intruding figure. Merlin, he said with a breath of prophecy. Even so, sire. I was praying but now for such a thing. Sire, pray no longer. I have kept my tryst. Uther rose up straightway from before the altar and stood before the square of the casement. The moonlight made a halo of his hair and lit his face with a whiteness that seemed almost supernatural. Strong as he was, his hands shook like aspen leaves. His lips were parted and his eyes wide with the shadow of the night. Merlin stood in the dark angle of the room. His voice seemed to come as from a tomb. The single lamp flame shook and quivered in a fickle draught. Sire, the moon is not yet full. And a grind? Sire? Where? Suffer me, sire. A moment. Speak quickly. God knows I have prayed like a Samson. Merlin cast his mantle from him and stood out in the moonlight wrapped in the mystic symbolism of his robe. Sapphire and emerald, ruby and sardonyx flashed with a ghostly gleam in the pale light and caught the moonbeams in their folds. Merlin's thin hands quivered like a spray of May blossom waving in the night wind, and his eyes were like the eyes of a leopard. Sire, thou wert Peleus once. I should remember it. Thou art Peleus again. Again? In thy red harness with thy painted shield, thy black horse. Take them all. The past rushes back like dawn. Near Caerleon lies a valley. There are twenty valleys. Go north, sire, in thought. Pass the cross on Beacon Hill. Hold on for the Abbey of the Blessed Mary. Take to the hills, go by a ruined tower. Ford Usk, where there is a hermitage. Pass through a waste. Cross more hills. Go down into a valley that runs north and south. I follow. Go alone, sire. Alone. The valley is piled steep with forest land. Go down and fear not. In the valley's lap lie meadowlands, a pool, a cottage. In that cottage you shall find a knight. His armor is gilded gold, his horse a gray. His shield shows a cloven heart set amid white lilies. Speak with that knight. Yet more. Speak with that knight, sire. In peace, if you love your soul. And, Igrine, Merlin, what of her? That night shall lead you to her, sire, I have said. This is the end of Book 3, Chapter 8. Narrated by Lori Nadeau-Richardson, www.loririchardsonvo.com.